Welcome to the Red Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, June 11th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, on Thursday, President Biden arrived in the UK on his first overseas trip as president. He's there for a three-day G7 summit, and he'll stay in Europe for a NATO meeting next week, which will include his first face-to-face meeting as president with Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Meanwhile, Vice President Kamala Harris is back in the U.S. after her first foreign trip. She visited Guatemala and Mexico to talk about what the administration calls the, quote, root causes of the crisis on the U.S.-Mexican border. And she returned to a wave of criticism from both the left and the right. So, with the Biden administration making its debut on the world stage, we thought it was a good time to discuss what all this tells us about the Biden administration's worldview and its emerging foreign policy agenda. Joining me are Tom Bevin, president and co-founder of Real Clear Politics, Carl Cannon, Washington bureau chief, and Jeff Gedman, co-founder and editor-in-chief of American Purpose, and he is also the former president of Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, an old friend, and is one of my go-to experts when it comes to all things international. So, Tom, let's start with this trip. It's Biden's first overseas visit. Upon landing, he told the U.S. servicemen, America is back. That seems like a not-too-veiled rebuttal to President Trump's American First policy. What's at stake here, and what is he trying to accomplish on this trip? Well, <clears throat> those are good questions, Andy. <laughs> um, I think one of the things he's trying to accomplish is exactly what you said, which is to uh, tell the world that he's not Donald Trump and that things will be going back to a sort of a pre-Trumpian approach to international relations, right? Donald Trump sort of famously had these, oh, let's call them um, challenging relationships with individual leaders, right? He would browbeat our allies around the globe on trade, on NATO, uh, etc. Biden is taking obviously the opposite approach, and that's so. That's one of the, I think, probably the main goal because I'm not really sure what else uh, the administration. They've already been downplaying the meeting with Putin as in, in terms of you know anything concrete coming out of that meeting. Um, the G7, you know, is is going to give a typical communique at the end that we'll talk about you know climate change and their commitments, but I'm not sure what uh, in fact concrete will come out of that as well. So I think I think one of the main goals is to, again, reestablish uh, sort of a pre-Trumpian landscape as far as uh, foreign policy and, and diplomatic affairs goes. Jeff, you know, Biden was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and his, his wife, Jill Biden, was uh, in front of the press saying how much he loves foreign policy. And uh, but these are tough times, and they talked about three things in particular, the three C's, I guess they call them COVID, cybersecurity, and climate change as being sort of important agenda items. Those are all pretty 21st uh, century concerns. Does all that experience help him or hurt him in this new environment, you think? Well, well Andy, great question, hard to tell, and I'm, uh, I want to be hopeful. I'm an American, is our president. I'm skeptical. Uh, yes, Joe Biden has loads of foreign policy experience from a past that seems increasingly distant to me, and that's the Cold War and the first three decades after the Cold War, and lots has changed, and lots is changing inside the United States, across the democracies, and with our adversaries, notably China and Russia. And then when you talk about these three Cs, Andy, yeah, yeah, this is all current, contemporary, future 
oriented. But if you go back and look at the, the op-ed that Joe Biden published on June 5th with the Washington Post about his trip to Europe, the NATO summit, the G7 summit, and his meeting with Vladimir Putin, it is a hodgepodge. It is, uh, Tom, you said this at the top, it's, you know, not unexpected, but a lot of State Department talk, which is, uh, you know, a little bit once over lightly in kumbaya. And, and the rubber meets the road now going forward as he identifies priorities, and that means resource allocations and spending political capital at home, and also confronting the fact that we actually have enemies in the world who do not share our vision and values and interests. We're not there yet. The rubber hasn't met the road yet, and this is a stop along the way. So that's my read so far. I'm hopeful as an American. I'm skeptical reading the tea leaves. Carl, what do you think? Well, yeah, you know, when he, when President Biden began this trip, he's, you know, he was in a British air base. He spoke to a thousand troops and he said he was talked about Russia. This was portrayed as he was putting Vladimir Putin on notice. He said, we are not seeking conflict with Russia. We want a stable and predictable relationship. But I've been clear the United States will respond in a robust and meaningful way if the Russian government engages in harmful activities. And I was struck by how that is so different from Donald Trump, um, but not not for the reasons most commentators said. It's just State Department gibberish. It's not even, doesn't mean anything meaningful and robust. What does that mean? What's he going to do? And it's called diplomacy. We're back, I mean, I mean, not that's every, right. Not that's every right. statement has to be a 170 character tweet that like blows up the Internet. I mean, isn't isn't this the isn't yeah, this agree part you, of the that's, return that, to normalcy that he promised? That's the point I was going to make. That's exactly right. And, uh, you know, as a newsman, you know, you like the drama. But I don't think a G7 is necessarily the place for drama. So, I, yeah, I was going to say that. I, you know, he says we're back. What he meant was, uh, you know, you could take that any way you want. But what I meant was we're back to some of the norms of international communication. And that's not all bad. So I was on a Zoom call, as is <laughs> as we're all still doing, uh, with, with Michael McFall, uh, former ambassador to Russia, the other day. And, and he was talking about this. I mean, he had... Uh, first of all, he had advised the administration in a foreign affairs op-ed in January, the incoming administration, uh, on how to handle Russia. And one of the things that he talked about was he he thought they should block the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which Biden turned around and, and approved. And as McFall said, they were doing that more for our relations with Germany than necessarily for our relations with Russia. But his take on the administration's plan and strategy is to sort of, you know, reset a baseline here. And after that, then they can say, you know, if, if Putin acts in aggressive uh, ways, they can say, well, listen, we tried. We tried to play nice with him, but now we can now we can drop the hammer. So we'll see whether that's the case or not. But McFall also said, Carl, to your point, he said, he said, I don't want a stable, predictable relationship with Russia. Like, that's not what we should necessarily be seeking, uh, and he talked about the way that Putin has acted so uh, aggressively over, even in relation to to how China's been acting with his annexation, with his, you know, getting involved in Middle East wars, you know, putting troops in Syria, 
um, all the cyber attacks and whatnot. And he also talked really interesting about how Putin, you know, he studies up for these for these types of meetings and he will do the sort of, you know, psyops type stuff. He brings the German shepherd into, you know, with his <laughs> meeting with An- Angela Merkel and she's afraid of dogs. He would like spring things on Obama and Biden and um, well, if he you know, takes when, off his shirt, it's not going to intimidate <laughs> Biden. <Tom. laughs> but the point is that uh, that that the relationship with Russia, it's not going to be stable and predictable because that's not how Putin operates. Well, Jeff, we're going to talk about Putin a little bit more in a second, but I want to just focus back on the G7. I used to have a foreign policy show I used to produce for PBS, and we used to have to do shows on G7 all the time. And our joke was always that there was the G7 and the G8. The G8 were the eight viewers who actually cared about the G7. So does this matter? Is this just a photo op? Or is this more important in Europe than it seems to us here in the United States? And a lot of the commentary running up to this was sort of how damaging Trump had been to the European psyche and how they were sort of traumatized by this experience. They were triggered, Andy. Yeah, yes, they were triggered. Um, is any of this true? You know, at this point, do the Europeans really need America? Well, taking one thing at a time, Andy. So, so do the Europeans need us? It depends on what. This is a Europe that feels in many areas increasingly autonomous and self-reliant. They remain centrally dependent on the United States for matters of hard security. That means, do you have the guns and the will to shoot and kill and die for your interests? Now, what I just said, we can say as Americans, it sounds a little bit rough. You don't say that in Brussels. You don't say that in Berlin. But it's true. You know, actually, are you capable and willing to defend your nations and your interests. And right now, this Europe is neither nor still very much dependent on us. And, you know, dependency breeds resentment. So, you know, that's part of this relationship and dynamic. The other thing, Andy, you you raised at the top, your G7 and this kind of symmetry, um, I I think it matters more to smaller and medium-sized powers like our European partners, because they get a seat at a table and a voice, and they can work together and they can leverage. It's my own view that for us as Americans, and I do believe in alliances and allies, I think it's very important to advance our interests, actually, our values. But but I think for us, um, the clearer we are on our own national agenda the more effective we can be within the context of alliances. It's not kumbaya. It's not holding hands to see what do you all think? We're going to think about what we think. And as it is in life and with the history of nations, he, she who has an agenda has a tremendous advantage. Otherwise, one becomes the victim of the agenda of others. Well, you know, I'd like to add one point here, which is that the coverage of this president is different from the coverage of the news coverage of the pre- previous president. And, you know, we, we don't want to belabor that point, but there's a certain amount of revisionism that goes, I mean, you know, all these other leaders didn't love American presence and every G7 and summit didn't go smoothly. I, I covered the white house for 15 years. I mean, George HW Bush puked on the, you know, Japanese prime minister, <laughs> uh, you know, the, his son, 
George W. Bush, just the sound of his voice irritated um, uh, Jacques Chirac. There were visible tension. They stood next to each other. Neither could stand the other guy. And uh, I remember the first time, the first uh, summit I covered was in Brussels, and Bill Clinton was president. He walks up. I was in the pool, and he walks up to Helmut Kohl, the Chancellor of Germany, and says, uh, Helmut, uh, I was watching the sumo wrestling. They're fatter than you. <laughs> and... Uh, now, start. Helmet Cole. First of all, his wife calls him Hair Cole, right? So he didn't call him Helmet, but and Cole speaks English as well as I do. But he turned to his translator, like, "What did he say?" And made him repeat it. And Clinton now realized he maybe offended Helmet Cole. So he says, "Well, you know, I mean, fatter than you and me," and it didn't help. But later, I, kept, I was in the same hotel as the, the White House people, and I thought, "What's he talking about? He watching sumo wrestling on?" To, on the stations on the cable in the hotel well i went up and found it it was right next to the porn station so i see why president clinton got there but i'm just trying to say we you know these things are always as jeff says kumbaya and holding hands and everybody agreeing it's never been like that so we ought to give trump a break insulting our allies and, and praising our enemies was a weird way to do diplomacy i grant you but these things are often fraught and the personalities don't always mesh either so, Tom, you, you had pointed out uh, these Time magazine covers, which I wish we could uh, show people. Uh, these were two Time magazine covers. Well, just Tom, just uh, t- tell us about them. Well, <clears throat> it was released uh, on Friday morning. Time released their new cover, and it's, it's Joe Biden on the cover um, wearing sunglasses, and the reflection in the glasses is Vladimir Putin. And the, uh, you know, the title of the main story is Taking on Putin. And it's just, you know, struck me as a bit over the top, <laughs> particularly when, if you remember, uh, when, when Trump went to his summit with Putin, they took a picture, Time Magazine put on the cover, they took a picture of Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin and sort of merged them together into one person. And the title of that was The Summit Crisis written by the same author, Brian Bennett. And so it just goes to show there were other Time magazine covers of, you know, the sort of White House and the Kremlin sort of mixing together. And I mean, the press coverage, I mean, I'll be a little more blunt than Carl on this. Uh, the the disparity in the coverage between the previous administration and the current administration is, um, it is just, at, at times it's embarrassing. I mean, it's just over the top. It's ridiculous the way that the press is fond over Joe Biden just in his first few months in office and the way that they treated Donald Trump every day for four years, which, you know, look, sometimes it was deserved. I mean, Trump absolutely made his share of mistakes and statements that got him in all sorts of trouble. Um, But he also, he was victimized by the press. And we've seen more and more of that lately in terms of this, the report, the inspector general's report on Lafayette Square, stuff that was reported about him and his administration that simply was not true, and it became the sort of official narrative. So uh, this is just another example of how, you know, Biden's getting this sort of glowing coverage, um, you know, where Trump, in the exact same circumstance, uh, did not get that. Jeff, do you you buy that? I do, and I think Tom's right. Our media, and I do broad brush because there are many notable, excellent exceptions, we are much more interested in Trump versus Biden and party versus tribe. And I did not support Donald J. Trump, but good heavens, obsession, fixation in life is seldom a good thing. Um, I would like our media 
debate and discourse to be more interested in Russia, actually, because Russia is a central problem. It's not the problem posed by China. That's of a different magnitude. But, but, but I would, having heard Tom and having heard Carl, I think we have to own up that Vladimir Putin has a different vision for the relationship. He wants a Europe weak divide dependent. He has a weak hand. He plays it strongly. I think he wants to build weak Russia up by cutting us down. That's not the Cold War threat. That's not the Soviet Union. But it's not nothing. And I think that it's a terrible mismatch. We do ourselves a dreadful misservice. I feel like, you know, you have Vladimir Putin, this very skillful, clinical, KGB character. And it feels to me, Andy, like, uh, sorry, but the killer versus the cupcakes. We're tying ourselves in knots. And Putin has our sized up. He knows he has what we can. He plays it oh so skillfully, often by setting up little landmines, and we step on them, and we step on them, and we step on them. Well, let's uh, switch to some different landmines, and that's, those are the ones that Kamala Harris uh, stepped on this week. I'm going to start by uh, playing for us all a little excerpt. This is uh, the vice president with uh, Lester Holt. Okay. Do you have any plans to visit the border? I, at some point, you know, I, we are going to the border. We've been to the border. So this whole, this, whole, this whole thing about the border, we've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. I, and I haven't been to Europe. And I mean, I don't, I don't understand the point that you're making. I'm not discounting the importance of the border. Well, I, I mentioned it because I, even, I, I know Republicans have certainly come at you on this, but Democratic Congressman Cuellar has a border district has said to the, you and the president, come. You need, I care you need to see about, this. Listen, I care about what's happening at the border. Carl, she got a lot of flack from uh, people for, for that comment. What, what did you make of it? Well, why wouldn't she? I mean, she, she said to Lester Holt, I don't understand the point you're making. I didn't understand the point she was making. She said she'd been to the border. She hadn't been to the border. She volunteered it. He didn't even ask. You know, she volunteered that she'd been there and then repeated it. And people are clamoring for her to go to the border since that's in her brief from the president. I, look, it's an unforced error. If people followed me around all day long with a microphone recorded everything I say, I, 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 I'd have some flubs too. Um, but, you know, this is one of the problems with our politics. If you make a mistake, just own up to it. Say, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. Forget about that. We're going to go to the border, you know, June 20th, whatever. I, but but going to the, her visiting the border is not really the issue. The issue is what to do about the border. Let's grant that Joe Biden has served Kamala Harris a couple of crap sandwiches here with Right. With immigration and voting rights, a bill that he knew was never going to pass. And two days later, Joe Manchin comes out and says, I'm not voting for that. You know, so wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hillary. Bill Clinton gave Hillary health care. That was his own (laughs) wife. Come on. Well, that's different, Carl. Uh, No. But so so these are tough issues, obviously. But but the fact that Kamala Harris continues to engage in this sort of self-harm where she won't go to the border. I mean, it's a no brainer politically just to give herself some cover and some. You know, so she can work on root causes if that's what, you know, she she claims is, is her brief. Um, look, this was a reminder, a very stark reminder of what we all observed during the campaign, which is she's not a very good politician. She is not quick on her feet. She is not good off script. She does not have the sort of instincts and intuitions of a Bill Clinton or uh, of a first-rate politician. And so that, you know, 
don't forget, Democratic voters had a pretty good look at her, and they did not like what they saw. She did not even make it to the first vote. She didn't make it to the end of the year. And there's a reason for that. Um, and I think people have forgotten that since she got picked and she's been in office. But this is a potential problem for her, not just in the next couple of years, but if she has aspirations for the highest office in the land, which I think everybody thinks that she does, um, she needs to get better at her job. And part of her job is <clears throat> being able to handle an obvious question. I mean, this was so obvious. It's like, how could she not have a prepared response? How could she not? How could she just give that response to Lester Holt, knowing that that question was going to be asked? So, Jeff, you know, she got criticized uh, from the left as well, because um, she said, I think she said this when she was in Guatemala, she said, I want to be clear to folks in this region who are thinking about making that dangerous trek to the United States-Mexico border. Do not come. Do not come. This was Harris. And then uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, tweeted out, this is disappointing to see. The U.S. spent decades contributing to a regime change and destabilization in Latin America. We can't help set someone's house on fire and then blame them for fleeing. Normally, I think when you're getting criticized from the left and the right in Washington, you, maybe you're doing something right. But in this case, what's your take, Jeff? So, so I do want to say, Andy, um, before I address that directly, I do think the politics and policy go hand in hand. Policy is more important. Um, but, but boy, did she fail on the politics. The, the reply in the clip you aired for us is a little bit hilarious. You know, well, I've been there, but we've been there, I guess, referring to some neighbors. And I haven't been to Euro Disney yet. I hear there are problems there, too. I, th this was you know, really didn't pass the laugh test. When I was running, uh, Andy, and this is a company, not a country, and admittedly, when I was running Radio for Europe, Radio Liberty, we had bureaus in 26 countries. The headquarters was in Ta, a couple thousand employees, journalists, stringers. Um, I started on a Monday. I went to a bureau on Thursday and I went to Moscow. You know why? It was the hardest country problem, bureau situation we faced. And I was advised well enough lean into the hardest thing early to show you get it, you're serious, you're on it. Then you have to fix it. And it seems to me in this case, she has a bigger, harder job as vice president. She did exactly the opposite. And as you heard from Carl and Tom, then she didn't own the mistake. She made herself look a little bit foolish. Then it gets even more foolish in different ways. So AOC, the Democratic representative from New York, Gosh, you know, do we ever learn or ever change? Remember that phrase, help me, was it coined by uh, our friend, the late Gene Patrick, blame America first? Well, sure. I mean, dear Congresswoman AOC, uh, America, if you look at the history and the decades of our relationship with Central America, undoubtedly we have made mistakes. And by the way, inarguably, we also have achievements and accomplishments and important ones. But to turn this into what we do wrong and the problems we've generated and we need to genuflect now and say, big, sorry, it's kind of neither here nor there. We have a border. Every nation has the responsibility to secure their border and we have problems emanating and coming from that region. Th those are the issues to be tackled, not uh, 
don't you feel as guilty as I do because we made mistakes in decades past? And, you know, there's something else going on, um, Andy, which is that when Kamala Harris talked perhaps inartfully about, you know, the root causes of immigration and, you know, uh, conservatives, uh, you know, the Federalists had a piece saying, uh, you know, she needs to understand why people are coming. Uh, Well, there's one reason they're coming. Uh, It's simple, he's wrote, the the Federalists wrote, the Biden administration is allowing him to the country. That's it. That's the reason. Well, it is not that simple. And I can think of at least three other reasons that people come from Central America and Mexico to this country. Uh, the first is is that their countries are economic basket cases. Uh, the second is that they're unsafe, and you know, we, you know, our we, our big cities are, are are unsafe now. But most of these places they're coming from are worse. Um, and the third is that this America is a great country. Well, who, everybody wants to come here. That's how we. That's why we're so big. That's why everybody on this call probably has different ancestors from different countries across the globe. So. This was not, you know, the Biden administration is not out of out of whack here. This is the way this country has always talked about immigration. And, you know, the caricature of Donald Trump and the caricature of AOC, um, you know, notwithstanding, even her, there's some points there. The, the, the gang MS-13 that's destabilized, you know, whole swaths of El Salvador, that is a gang that started as a prison gang in California. Um, you know, so America is does have some responsibility from for these problems and and it has an obligation and it is always understood when you talk about immigration and the bill that Ronald Reagan signed in 1986 the first great immigration reform bill uh, part of that was foreign aid to Mexico and foreign an understanding that if these countries have better stronger democracies and better economies that will ease their immigration pressures to talk about works really well Carl to talk about that is well <laughs> You don't know what would happen without it, Tom. I mean, one thing we got from that bill was three million legalized citizens, most of them from Mexico, and almost all of them great contributors to the country. Reagan said it was one of the proudest things he'd ever done in public office. So, you know, we we should start talking about immigration in a nonpartisan way. And if we do, some of the things these Democrats are saying, a lot of it will make sense. Carl, if I may jump in, I know Tom wants to get back in, Andy. I agree with all of that. And then I'd just like to add the other side of the coin. You've uh, aptly described why they come and who we are. The other side of the coin is how confused and conflated uh, our debate has become about who comes here. And so now, I believe, we fail often to distinguish between asylum seekers stroke refugees and immigrants and legal immigrants, and illegal immigrants. I live in Northwest Washington, and there are neighbors who have signs in their yard, yards that, that say, no human being is illegal. Well, that's true. But I think they're making a political statement that suggests a lot of confusion about who we let in, when, and on what basis. Yeah, I, look, I agree. <clears throat> immigration is is unfortunately not going to be a nonpartisan issue. It has been a partisan issue for a long, long time. Will continue to be that way. Donald Trump used the issue of immigration and the wall, um, and and he was, I think, demonized for that. I was going to say we've moved to polar, you know, our polar opposites on this. But quite frankly, I'm not sure how far the Republican Party 
as far as I can see, still believes in legal immigration, right? It's still a party of legal immigration. They just want some control over the border. And then, you know, we can talk about how many we should let in, uh, you know, under what circumstances uh, and what the, you know, how long they should be allowed to stay, pass the citizenship, et cetera, et cetera. I think where the real change has come over, especially the past few years, is in the Democratic Party, which, as as you mentioned with that tweet with AOC, I mean, she literally does not believe we should have any restrictions at all on anyone coming through uh, the southern border. And and that is, it's still a minority position within the Democratic Party, I'd like to hope, but the but the party has shifted left. I don't, I don't know about that, Tom. It's a minority position within the Mexican American community in Texas. I mean, it is not. It is not. It's an elite view. It is not a sustainable national view. And one of the reasons she's, you know, this her rhetoric gets attention is because there's a vacuum of real leadership. I think if the party leaders in both parties got together and decided to talk about this in a mature adult way, you, you we wouldn't have to listen to some of this stuff. I think it's. I, I think it might be more of a prevailing view on the left side of the Democratic Party. I mean, Luis Gutierrez was our congressman here in Chicago for a long time. <clears throat> and he, you know, was pushing Obama to get, remember Obama said he was going to take care of immigration in his first hundred days, never got it done. Um, but there are plenty of folks within the Democratic Party on the left wing that that really don't want to see much, if all, if if any restriction. I mean, we saw during the, during the presidential primary, it was like, you know, abolish ICE, right? Make decriminalize border crossings. I mean, that was that was a a majority position of the Democrat of all of those Democrats who were standing on stage. They raised their hand. They wanted to give you know health care to illegal immigrants. I mean, I'm sorry, Carl. The, maybe the majority of the parties, but the people who were running for president were fully on board with most of that stuff. Just got one more thing I want to talk about, and that's this. Um, I was struck by this that that when Biden was at the uh, he went to the RAF air base. I think uh, Carl mentioned that told the U.S. personnel there that the Joint Chiefs of Staff had told him that when he, and this was when he was vice president, that the greatest physical threat facing America was global warming. And, um, and then I think on the same day, his own Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Mark Milley, were in front of Congress, and they sort of walked that back. And here's what Milley said at the time. He said, the president is looking at potential threats at a much broader angle than I am. I'm looking at it from a strictly military standpoint. And from a strictly military standpoint, I'm putting China and Russia up there. That is not, however, in conflict with the acknowledgement that climate change or infrastructure or education systems, and then he's paused and he said, national security has a broad angle to it. So, you know, and Kamala Harris, for that matter, talked about climate change as being one of the root causes for uh, problems at the southern border. And I'm just wondering... What does this tell us about the Biden worldview? Yeah, I, I think, Andy, it, it tells us a couple of things. One is about the internal pressures and constituencies and lobbies inside the Democratic Party. And he's got to juggle and manage those, including with his left wing. We can find that in different ways. And it also tells us for anybody running anything, and certainly for the chief executive leading the United States, if everything is priority, nothing is priority. So, so good heavens, I mean, of course, education and civic education and infrastructure and roads and bridges and a decent honorable wage and, and seven other things 
But in a four-year presidency, he cannot manage or tackle them all, and he will have to allocate resources and split, spend political capital. And to get to the essence of your question, it's my view that more than two or three things can be true at the same time. I'm not a climate change denier. I think there is science and we do have a problem. But, but what you alluded to, Andy, I find more compelling at this moment, including because if we do not manage hard security threats and problems posed by Russia and China, forget about managing climate change in the next 10 or 20 years. If China wins in the great power competition, we're going to spend time on lots of other things than climate change. I think China is probably the most pressing challenge, multifaceted, that the United States faces going forward. I think Russia, not as a great power, but as a spoiler, is a pretty serious problem, too. Carl. Well, I, I, I agree with Jeff. And I, I just, you know, if w- words have no meanings when you when you just say, you know, climate change is the greatest threat to humanity. Well, you could say, you know, greed or absence of love is the greatest threat to humanity. I mean, you, however, you sound like Jill Biden, but go ahead. Well, yeah, I know you want to get really cosmic. Sure, there we have the human race is imperfected and. <laughs> some point we need to get off this rock because it's too small go to other planets but you know a four-year presidency as jeff said what what can he deal with you know uh, china um a virus developed in china we still don't know how um or exactly when was exported all around the world uh it's killed i don't know three three point eight million people worldwide you know six hundred thousand of them in the united states if if we'd had if we'd had a conflict with China, an armed conflict, and lost 600,000 troops, nobody would be talking about global warming. I mean, the, the, this idea that that the commander in chief is is you know talking like a college professor is not as reassuring as he thinks it is. I, you know, I and I, I'm I don't mean to be old fashioned or narrow minded, but I think we ought to focus on the threats right before us. Well, Tom, I'm going to let you have the last word this week, so go for it. <laughs> I'll be narrow-minded and old-fashioned. Now, it's funny, even the way Biden said it, he's like, this is no joke, man, as if we thought it was going to be a joke, right? This is the problem. It's everything. It, it, it's like Democrats with infrastructure. Suddenly, everything's infrastructure, right? Including the stuff that wasn't infrastructure before. And, and they do the same thing with climate change. Every problem, it's climate change. Kamala Harris said this when she was in Guatemala, and the next night, the president of Guatemala was on TV saying, you know what the problem is? The problem is the administration's policy. It's not climate change, right? That's the real reason. So, look, I'm not saying climate change isn't an issue that needs to be dealt with, but to the extent Democrats and the administration and the president himself suggest that everything, you know, climate change is at the root of all of these different problems we're facing, uh, I think to Jeff's point, when 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 you take that sort of tack, then suddenly it diminishes the real problems because we're not identifying them. We're not focusing on them in the sort of immediate sense. And and we need to do that because I do think you mentioned China, Russia. For me, what's been most interesting and perhaps frightening is to see how these non-state slash state-affiliated basically criminal gangs have been attacking our country, right, via cyber attacks. 
that is, uh, you know, probing the new administration. And so far, they're two for two. They've gotten ransoms out of two different companies to the tune of $15 million combined, right? So that stuff is going to continue. It's going to get worse. And so that's an issue that we need to get our, our heads screwed on straight and get focused on because that is going to, uh, that, that stuff is only going to escalate unless we come up with a plan to stop it. And it's, it's, it's a hard problem because they're private companies, and the, but the government does need to get involved because these are essentially attacks on, on you know, our infrastructure and, and our economy. And so I, that, to me, is the biggest threat facing the country. And it, and it is coming from Russia. It is coming from China. But we need to get focused on it. Well, okay. On that happy note, we're going to uh, have to leave it. I want to thank my guests, Tom Bevan, Carl Cannon, and Jeff Gedman. Uh, we're here in various shapes and forms on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. So bookmark this podcast. Come back often. You can always find out more on realclearpolitics.com. And as I always do, I urge you to visit Real Clear Politics, read at least one piece from a publication or writer with whom you disagree, and also check out Jeff's online magazine. It's called American Purpose. It's at AmericanPurpose.com. Great stuff on foreign policy, culture, lots of different things. Great writers. I thank you for listening. And until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth. <laughs>